Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guests are Toby Green and Thomas Fatsi. Toby Green is a professor of African history at King's College London. His previous book, A Fistful of Shells, was awarded a number of international literary prizes, as well as being shortlisted for the LA Times Book Prize and the Wolfson History Prize. He has written widely about the COVID-19 pandemic for outlets including African Arguments, Prospect, and Unheard, and he is a member of the steering group of Collateral Global. Thomas Fatsi is a writer, journalist, and translator. His previous books include The Battle for Europe, How an Elite Hijacked a Continent, and How We Can Take It Back, and Reclaiming the State, A Progressive Vision of Sovereignty for a Post-Neoliberal World. He is a columnist for Unheard and Compact. In January of this year, Toby Green and Thomas Fatsi co-authored The COVID Consensus, The Global Assault on Democracy and the Poor, a critique from the left, which is an analysis of the regressive effects of lockdown policies. I welcome Toby Green and Thomas Fatsi to Savage Minds. When I read your book, I was taken by the chapter that has been in the center of my brain for years, the chapter entitled The Rise of a Single Narrative of the Science. Because as someone who, although my PhD is not in science, my undergraduate degree was. And one thing you learn when you study science is science isn't a monolith. It's not like there's some Politburo mandating what science is, I should say, post-Galileo. <laughs> How did science over the past three years come to be monolithized by governments, agencies, even NGOs, and then I'd have to say legacy media. Toby? Okay, so I go, <laughs> I mean, I mean, you see, I would take this, I think there's a religious element to this, as far as I can see, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, it's, we, we're, we've seen over the last 50 years, really, the consecration of science as a kind of religion in society, providing norms, providing um, fr ethical frameworks often and moral frameworks it, it, and replacing religion in many in many ways as as to how um, how people you know can and should lead their lives and I think that in a sense what we saw is the logical conclusion of that the institutionalization of a doctrine around science which of course is a very you know a religious process and uh, and so that, that has to be controlled and and there always was in, in religious frameworks a relationship between you know religious power and state power, secular power. And that's what we we saw consecrated, if you like, with uh, the way in which government um, government frameworks, government government needs, government, uh, government priorities became melded into what science was. So I think it ceased, at the, you know, obviously at this point, and, and, and I think this is something we say in the book, you know, a lot of this um, wasn't new exactly. It had been there bubbling away for years, but it, was the COVID was, if you like, a symptom which brought it into the open in such a transparent way, and it became clear that this process of institutionalizing and and creating a religious framework out of science had, in fact, completely stripped it of science of the scientific method. I mean, that's where I would start. I would add to that. Uh, I think this uh, has to be, you know, contextualized within a sort of a, a wider anti-democratic push that we've seen over the past decades as part of the uh, neoliberal um, era. And that has included, um, I think, uh, uh, you know, a, a transition from democracy to technocracy. And so that has been associated with, uh, you know, an increasing uh, role uh, for the so-called experts um, that are, you know, that rise above the kind of the bickering and uh, the pettiness of uh, 
uh, and the complications as well of uh, parliamentary politics to kind of dictate, you know, uh, uh, an alleged objective um, uh, truth. Uh, uh, so we saw that, for example, after the financial crisis with the rise of the economists uh, who were uh, who for a decade were, you know, were, were used to uh, to explain why austerity was absolutely inevitable because, uh, you know, otherwise uh, there would have been a uh, another financial collapse. And of course, and so those those policies, you know, politicians weren't didn't have to actually justify those policies uh, uh, and weren't held accountable for those policies because they could appeal to uh, kind of you know and and an objective uh, technical uh, truth to uh, to explain why those policies wasn't were necessary and of course that was um, you know was 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 completely false and uh, uh, you know but but you know just like the uh, the kind of the 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 the, the econocracy the economic uh, this new cast of economists were you know kind of called in to justify um those uh those policies i think we saw exactly the same thing with uh during the pandemic with uh you know the scientists and the uh, epidemiologists and the virologists in the in the role of uh you know of what was previously the role of the economists uh, but i think it's exactly the same logic at play it's a profoundly uh anti-democratic it's, it's a way to sidestep democratic debate it's a way to sidestep uh actually giving uh giving people a voice so it's a, you know it's 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 kind of a structurally uh authoritarian uh approach to uh to 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 the managing of societies and 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 of politics and of course so so that would be you know problematic in itself even if the sci- you know the science really was complete you know really did rise above uh you know any conflict of interest or you know any uh, uh form of uh, capture by vested interests that uh, that might be a play there you know i mean i think it would it would, it would still be problematic cuz you know the idea that uh you know even if everything the science said about you know the 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 the, you know, the infection fatality rate of COVID and and all that stuff. Even if all that was true, uh, even if, for example, you know the, the modeling concerning the, uh, the 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 impact of lockdowns and in, re- in the reduction of hospitalization and death rates, even if all that had proven to be completely correct and completely true, which we know wasn't, it would still be problematic because politics is about taking into account a number of. Uh, factors so that would have been just one factor to take into account amongst you know a wide uh array of factors and so it would have been problematic in itself this idea that you know you can kind of uh, uh um just uh, let 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 the science take care of politics you know because politics is about taking into consideration you know various inputs and outputs i mean it's managing you know it's the managing of complex societies and that doesn't have easy kind of uh technical uh, answers so it would have been an absurd concept in and of itself even if the science really had been completely neutral and completely uh, and had proven correct. Uh, But of course, you know, given that, you know, we know that the science is far from uh, immune from conflict of interests and that in fact, um, the, uh, the, 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 the scientific, the medical establishment is rife with conflicts of interest. Uh, then it makes the concept even more, uh, absurd. And it's even more astonishing that so many people actually fell for it, you know, given the history of what, you know, of, 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 of corruption and malfeasance and fraud that has, uh, um, that has riddled the, uh, pharmaceutical industry and the medical industry for for decades uh so that makes the whole thing even more astonishing in my uh my view
In these past months, we've had a bird's eye view for those who haven't read the actual book. They've read reviews, perhaps, of the Fauci biography. Then we have the Twitter files brought to us by various actors, such as Matt Taibbi. And it's astonishing to me, and Thomas, I guess I direct this more to you, this question, in the sense of, I'm a 10-year newbie of sorts. I came from academia into journalism, and my jaw drops when I see the way that legacy media is alighting what has to be the biggest story of our lifetime. And when I say this, I don't mean to exaggerate in terms of the numbers of people affected by draconian policies, the way that here in Italy, I'm in Emilia-Romagna, the way here in Italy Things were rolled out such that easily 50% of the time when I had to go shopping, I was stopped by police or the carabinieri. The way that there was this surveillance culture brought in and somehow today, I was telling Toby earlier, I call this the Stepford wife syndrome, where you talk to people, I was just at the pharmacy yesterday to get a thermometer and there was a big plastic division, transparent. And I just stepped to the side of it. And I said, I'm sorry, I can't stand these things. It's they're such fictions. <laughs> and the pharmacist says, oh, but senora, there is a good science. And I said, I, <laughs> I don't know what science you're reading, but I suggested some studies to her, both on these <laughs> plastic barriers and on the masks. She was very antagonistic to say the least but my issue here is like i'm living in a society i feel of zombies where people on the upper echelon of the economic scale want to just move on because obviously what they want to move on they don't want the plebs to rise up we suffered while they sat in their luxurious houses and grounds and were able to look out all of us in little shoebox flats. Literally, that's what I faced. I was living in a tiny flat. I had just moved to Italy. And looking out from the back windows of our house, we looked onto easily a two-hectare land with, um, there were children driving around uh, electric cars on their grounds. It was like, I felt like I was being tortured, and um, but it was the Pacharati of the village where I was living, and we were in a very tiny flat. The government here, as you know, Thomas, you know, <laughs> we heard more about when you could go to the second homes or when people could get their football matches. Yeah. We heard very little about rent. No, rent was not ever frozen. We heard very little about class issues. Even when I look at the international scale of media, I had to turn to I kid you not, Fox News to hear from legacy media about class and poverty. Fox News, which during the global (laughs) war on terror, I was having conniption fits to even hear the word Fox News, much less have two seconds of Tucker Carlson. So something radically shifted. Can can I just come in there? I mean, because I think there's something really important here. Then I'll pass over to Thomas. But I just want to say that, you know, what we've seen, you know, the first 20 years of this century, what we observed were you know, neo-imperialist wars being exacted around the world, the policy of Western elites, basically supported by conservatives like those on Fox News and to the horror of liberals. And and like what we saw in 2020 was the complete a, a sort of transformation where we saw effectively the, the logical conclusion of those policies, you know, destroying the democratic and socioeconomic futures of people in 
lower middle income countries being then enacted in 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 wealthy societies and we saw a complete turnaround where um that this was to the complete horror of conservatives uh of many conservatives at least and people on fox news and you know cheered on by liberals and so i just end up feeling you know that this is rich pickings for psychoanalysts but i, I you know we have seen a really bizarre flipping of you know the political framework where what people supported they now feel horrified by and what people felt horrified by they now support yeah no i think it's interesting to uh yeah i mean to kind of compare what happened over the past three years to uh the iraq war because i mean we we all remember the level of uh i mean even back then the the mainstream media was you know very much uh harmonized and you know the message was was uh was very was in general very very pro-war and we all remember that and so uh and, and the conservative media was uh um especially um uh, uh rabid about the war and uh and so you know i mean we, we remember that time as one as as one where you know you could really see the you know the 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 of the, the emerging power of the mainstream media to impose its own uh, its own narratives, but um, you know, regardless of of reality. But on the other hand, Thomas, but the left was, a, but, but the real yeah. left was completely opposed to that war. You know, we, all, I mean, I'm sure you, you know, we all went on marches. Sure. You know, they said, you know, this is an imperialist war. We can't, you know, we must oppose it. And yet, you know, sure. yeah, and I think there are a number of reasons for that. I mean, part, yeah. I mean, and of course, you know, staying onto the media. Part of the reason is that. Uh, of course, the media wasn't completely aligned back then, uh, and so of course, you know, the, mm. the, you know, much of it, you know, was uh, m- m- much of the debate was, uh, you know, I mean, the kind of you know left wing progress, a, a, a good you know part of the you know left wing progressive uh, media, uh, you know, did did oppose the war, but I think that you know, but that also had to do with uh, kind of you know. Um, the kind, of, the kind of polarization that we also talk about in the book. I mean, that was kind of also, I think, a precedent of that. I think the fact that uh, George Bush was was in power was uh, was a big part of the uh, of the reason that so many people uh, opposed the war. I think if uh, if Clinton or some other progressive had been in power, it probably would have been uh, probably would have been different. And in fact, you know, even just a just going a few years back, I mean, you know, there was hardly any response to. Uh, the you know U.S. and NATO bombing of Yugoslavia because you know I mean Clinton was in power at the time. So I, I mean think... that's a really good point. And if you think of, of more recently, you know Libya, which took place under the yeah. Obama administration, or you know it's yeah. true. Yeah. So I think I mean uh, so so I think yeah again I mean I think a lot of the issues you know a lot of the stuff we saw during COVID I mean the, it was already uh, kind of similar. I mean a lot of those dynamics were already kind of you know were already present back back in. Uh, kind of back in the early 2000s, I think, uh, but in, uh, in in a kind of more embryonic form, and even as far as the media goes, and you know, <clears throat> the uh, you know the level of harmonization and uh, kind of you know uh, of, of the whole pandemic narrative was just astonishing. I mean, it was you know beyond anything that we uh, you know that we saw during the Iraq War. I mean, it's been yeah. The standardization of the message has been, you know, was was absolutely complete, and so I think, uh, uh, and yeah, so you, you know, I mean, not just kind of within countries, but across countries as well. So I mean, it was the first time I think that we saw the emergence of a uh, of a single narrative uh, 
almost on a global scale with very with very few exceptions and i think that you know that points also to uh the uh the 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 emergence of a of a system of uh of of coordination on a global scale within uh economic um yeah, i mean and that's something we look at in the book among you know, <laughs> economic and political elites that 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 you know what there wasn't there 20 years ago and i think uh that's all you know that's also that also explains the kind of this there's incredible you know astonishing level of standardization of the message across countries the first time the billions of people across the planet were basically exposed to the same narrative uh a narrative that was largely uh kind of you know uh, decided by a you know a single supranational organization which which was the world health organization which in coordination with you know legacy media traditional media and social media uh, single-handedly decided uh, you know what was what was true and what was not and then kind of handed down orders to uh, to you know to, to to all the rest and and you know I, I was able to coordinate with pre-existing uh kind of you know anti-disinformation quote-unquote organizations like the trusted news initiative that we talk about in the book and other initiatives that so so i think much you know the 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 architecture for this to happen was uh was was in place and i think that that explains a lot of what of what we saw during the past three years and it wasn't in place i would say even 10 years before you know when you know when 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 there was a swine flu pandemic and uh, hardly anyone remembers that a pandemic was declared at the time i think uh I think, yeah, and of course, that also with the emergence of social media. If I could just come in there on swine flu, yeah. I think, uh, you know, that's really important because actually what we saw after swine flu was a lot of uh, in mainstream media criticism of the response. There were reports on Channel 4 News uh, about how it could have been, you know, one of the biggest corruption scandals, the way in which, you know, the the, 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 the vaccine deployment uh, and the and the links between people with ties to the pharmaceutical sector in the World Health Organization. Yeah, that was covered by the by 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 Telephone News, for example. Uh, there was a big report uh from in the European Union's uh medical watchdog led by Wolfgang Vodard, which again was incredibly critical. So yeah, coming back to this point that you raised, you know, the single narrative, you know, the single narrative uh didn't exist then. And I think it is to do with one of the things we look at in the book as well is the way in which corporate capture of state organizations corporate capture of of, the, of both state and transnational institutions of government obviously you know if you look back at swine flu it's a good example because it shows that actually that hadn't reached the level which it had reached by 2020 which enabled the single narrative to be to be to become so so standardized yeah and of course there's the completely novel element of social media I think yeah. that which you know yeah exactly because Twitter was only launched in I think 2005 so it just wasn't a factor in swine flu and yeah and uh, yeah I think Facebook was yeah well maybe yeah more or less around that that time right so um so so I think that's completely fundamental for understanding well I mean I mean both in terms of um just how you know immersed we are in uh in 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 this flow of information, way more than we used to be, you know, pre-social media. I mean, pre-social media, you would, uh, I mean, you would be, I mean, you would be even assuming that, you know, pre-social media, 
the, the the mainstream media had been you know as aligned as it was during the pandemic or as it is today on a number of other issues you still would have been exposed to that for at most what a couple of hours a day you know i mean maybe reading the the newspaper in the morning and uh maybe you know listening to to the radio on your way to work and maybe watching the news uh, in the evening you know that that's the kind of amount of propaganda so you would have been exposed to maybe a couple of hours of propaganda yeah. uh, a day and the rest of the day you would have been uh you would have been engaged in discussions with uh with uh you know with with real people uh, in your life and you would have been uh you know exchanging uh information you would have been you know, actually living uh, in in reality uh, rather than you know uh, experiencing a mediated version of reality, um, you would be experiencing reality with your with your own eyes, with your own senses. Uh, you would be trying, you know, making sense of reality, uh, you know, well, with your with your own senses. And um, and of course, you would be exposed to uh, you know maybe you read a book or you'd be exposed to alternative sources of information as well. Uh, now you know we're immersed almost twenty four seven in this uh, social media information flow, and so of course, if anyone is, I mean, if if anyone who's capable of controlling that flow of information will, of course, have a degree of, uh, I mean, w- would have an ability to influence the thoughts and 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 feelings, even uh, kind of almost limbic, re- you know, feelings of people to a degree that would have been unthinkable pre uh, pre social media. And in fact, you know, and as we know, that's exactly what has happened. We know that social, you know, we know that all the major social media networks were effectively uh, working hand in hand with uh, uh, with state institutions. It's, uh, you know, not, you know, which to be fair, I mean, you know, we we knew that already with the Snowden affair that there was, uh, you know, the Snowden show that that was all that happened. Again, it's almost as if COVID brought something which had been going along for a long time to the surface. It was the symptom which expressed all of these factors. And yeah, absolutely. And another and another aspect of social media is the uh, um, is the uh, you know kind of how it can be also used to uh, to 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 exclude people from the you know the the the, the um, from you know from civilized society so i mean if you you can you can very you know very anyone you can be you if you're called out on social media you know you're you know um, painted as a conspiracy theorist or a uh, an anti-vaxxer or whatever i mean that can destroy someone's reputation you can you can really kind of you know throw someone outside of the uh of the of the kind of you know the, the borders of what is considered uh civilized society very very quickly and that you know that that turns into an, an extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful instrument of uh, of social control, and again, that's something that wasn't there. I mean, you know, you would have been much more afraid to speak to speak your mind. Uh, say, I mean, you know, back I don't know at a rally or something back in back in the early two thousands, because uh, I mean, the consequences of 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 even taking a controversial stance would have been uh, would have been limited. Uh, you know, uh, um, nowadays, I mean, it's enough for you to say what is considered, you know, to 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 kind of veer off the what is considered the uh, the acceptable um, you know railings of uh, public discourse um, for you know seriously. I mean, for 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 you to get, I mean, if not cancelled, definitely. Uh, um, for, for your reputation to be thrashed and in fact you know that's what we saw during that's what happened to a lot of uh, even highly respected uh scientists and doctors that you know took a you know took misaligned or non-aligned views during the pandemic and you know had you know they were dragged through the mud on social media uh in a way that i think so so that turned 
into, I mean, that's an incredibly powerful disciplinary tool uh, that, that, again, didn't exist, uh, you know, even, even 20 years ago. Um, so I think that's why we see this level of homo- homogenization of, 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 the, of, uh, of people's opinions, even, uh, even on social media, or at least a polarization in a sense. So of course, there's you know, a lot of people you know that social media is just, they don't, they don't give a shit, you know, <laughs> and, uh, because maybe they don't have, you know, I mean, that, that, you know, their reputation doesn't have, uh, you know, doesn't have so much value, but especially when you start moving into the kind of, uh, when you start looking at the more kind of professional managerial class, the academia and so on. I mean, we know that, uh, you know, the reputation of capital is fundamental. And so that's why this class, I think, was the most aligned class to the COVID consensus now. Well, Thomas, as I've, as I've said to people, you know, anybody looking at what, you know, my work over the last few years must draw the conclusion I don't give a shit about my personal reputation. Well, yeah, yeah, you're clearly an exception to the rule. <laughs> yeah, but as you say, yeah, it's not been a widespread, you know, people do mostly care about their reputations a lot. It's interesting, though. I've had two of the three great Barrington Declan creators on the show, and I've had Jay on twice. And he spoke about what Fauci did to or attempted to do to his reputation, although I'd say it's the inverse as to whose reputation is tarnished today, given what we know about myriad conflicts of interest, not only Fauci's, but those are serious in and of themselves, but throughout the establishment. And even there are greater questions here that I've been pondering over the past three years, such as since when, like, did those of us in Italy vote for Fauci as the grand poobah, to use a Flintstones term? Because mm-hmm. in many respects, a lot of decisions seem to be coming from the White House in other countries. It was sort of yeah. like, you know, that Sesame Street, uh, one of these kids is doing his own thing. Well, nobody was doing their own thing. Everyone was following this unelected Fauci, these unelected bodies. And when you mentioned earlier about political interest coming from the private sector, the way that even NGOs have an enormous amount of power and policymaking way Mm. beyond COVID, these are questions that we have yet to scratch the surface of, I feel. Because when I look at, I'm just going to give you an example, because I went there this morning, I went and Googled the latest, the mask study, the Cochrane Review. And I just put mask study COVID in Google, clicked on the news item, and here are the headlines. Masks, this is ABC News. Masks are effective, but here's how a study from a respected group was misrepresented to say they weren't. CNN, opinion, were masks useless? The deceptive interpretation of what science tells us. (laughs) The New York Times opinion piece. Here's why the science is clear that masks work. Vox the controversy over the Cochrane Review on COVID masks explained and on and on. Like yeah. we are reading the news as let's just say not journalists, not people in academia, just the regular Jane and Joe Schmo reading the news. How can people know anything since the conflicts of information in the media, ostensibly objective media, but clearly not, is telling us everything? Well, I mean, this is something we, this is something we go into in the book in a way, because we, we look at in the in the chapter, the final chapter on politics and uh, the construction of the media narrative, where, as Thomas said, you know, we talk about the trusted news initiative. So for listeners who may not be aware of this, you know, in 2019, a, a, an organisation was formed called the Trusted News Initiative, which brought together a lot of the biggest, most powerful media organisations in the world. The BBC was its was was running it. 
But then it had, you know, Reuters, it had New York Times, The Guardian, or, you know, all the main players that you might think of, and, and also uh, the Hindu, for example. So it was global as well. So, you know, and, and it was specifically formed around uh, times of tension at elections. And it was, so it was clearly formed around uh what was going to happen in 2020 in the US in the in the in the Trump uh, in the Trump what turned out to be the Trump Biden election, uh, and then the Trusted News Initiative became the 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 kind of clearinghouse for received opinion about COVID. So you know it, it that became the way in which uh, information about the pandemic was marshaled. But what we argue in that chapter, and I think, is really important. You know what, as Thomas was, you were talking about the transformation in social media, the transformation in information in our lives. I think this is really important. You know, our lives have been transformed in terms of its interaction with information. But we clearly live in a world now where, you know, information is unreliable. It's completely unreliable from any source, virtually. You know, what counts as a reliable source of information is is, is virtually impossible to determine on any rational basis. And it becomes a to the propaganda. And that really is, has major implications for, for, for democracies because, you know, democracies are founded on the principle of rational choice. And rational choice requires uh, accurate information. And if we are now in a world, which I think most people would recognize on whatever side of the political spectrum, actually, you know, this isn't controversial. We're in a world of misinformation. It's just what we might think of misinformation is not what other people think of as misinformation. We're in a world of misinformation. That makes you know, the democratic process in, increasingly difficult, difficult to see how it can, you know how it's going to respond to that and and i think we as you said actually yeah. you know, we have to have an open conversation and we haven't seen it because it's so it's so important but going back to your thoughts on the war on terror this is one thing toby that i disagree with you on true i was on the streets it sounds like you were on the streets a lot of people on the left were on the streets protesting this but something interesting happened right around that time and i saw this i was on cnn responding to comments on the conference in Durban just the month before uh, the 9-11. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, during the first months after 9-11, I started to see sites like CNN close their comment sections down. Now, that's mm-hmm. a telling sign, because what was going on on the left side of the spectrum within media was this. You had the likes of Jeffrey Goldberg and Judith Miller writing absolute nonsense about... Mm-hmm the alleged connections between Saddam Hussein and Al-Qaeda, totally fictitious. Mm -hmm. This was Goldberg. What happened to Goldberg? He was promoted. (laughs) He -hmm. was promoted from the New Yorker. Now he runs the Atlantic. What else? Uh, We had Judith Miller's fictions. Again, she left the New York Times. There were no real repercussions for a lot of the people that spun the the global war on terror. And at the same time that those of us on the left left, because there's the neoliberal left, which I put in quotes the left there because it's not that lefty. Um, But the neoliberal left was actually quite on board with this. And let's not forget, it was Representative Democratic Representative Barbara Lee from California, the only member who voted against the war from the Houses of Congress and the Senate, the only one. So this was a war largely supported by both parties. And there was an opportunity, both journalistically and within politics, for the Democrats to turn that ship around. They chose not to. And this is when I started to see political opinions of people, and I have to sadly include some of my friends, shifting to this very hawkish mentality. Now, I think a lot of this is very much part and parcel of how 
the COVID narrative within media and big tech was fomented because what we learned from the global war on terror is that you can change the quote unquote left's opinion on the very principles upon which they're based, class issues, anti-war, none of this resonated. Yeah, I I, I don't think, we, I think we're fairly close together on that. And I, I, I would agree that, you know, one of the things I, it became clear in the first 15 years of this century that, you know, the I think in a way, the idea of left and right in the US or the UK, you know, is, is so out of date. You know, I mean, the, the Democratic Party is not a left wing party or it has a left wing element. You know, Bernie Sanders represented it. But the Democratic Party elite wouldn't allow him to be the candidate, even though he was the choice of the primaries. Uh, and, uh, you know, the Labour Party, again, you know, it's, it, you know, there, there isn't really a political clearinghouse for a genuine left. It is, it is a neoliberal left. And, and for quite a long time before COVID, I'd uh, lost uh, it. I kind of lost interest. I know is the right word, but I, I certainly didn't have any sense that um, that the left, that that the, that the the mainstream Western left was going to be able to offer any kind of fundamental change. Because yes, as you say, it was fundamentally on board with the program. It was on board with uh, with neoliberal governance and what that required. And I think that you know that that had become clear, really. Yeah, and even amongst the hard left, if you recall, Adolf Reed actually hit back against the claims that COVID has a somatic racism to it of sorts, that he said, well, no, this is a sociological issue, obviously, who are living in close quarters, who's not. And the DSA in the US, where he was supposed to speak in Philadelphia, like two months later, deplatformed him basically accusing him of racism, Adolf Reed. <laughs> and I had to do a double take on this because it became this very slippery slope to whatever you said. It wasn't just that you wanted to kill grannies or that you were a COVID denier or an anti-vaxxer, right? I mean, I've given all my kids those those shots. They were born in St. Mary's. They got all the required shots initially. But of course, there's a huge difference between taking a polio vaccine and taking a newly experimental, untested, vac quote, air quote, vaccine. So yeah. all of these issues became conflated. And is it any wonder that somehow if you were against certain tenets of the hokum of the science, you were even accused of racism and it was totally elliptical, right? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about the, the pandemic. It wasn't just the mainstream left uh, that, that went along with it. I mean, it was the uh, yeah, it was the so-called hard or radical left as well. And in fact, they even doubled down on it. I mean, the, I mean, the, the hard left's uh, you know cr criticism of the of the measures was that they weren't harsh enough. They weren't restrictive enough. You know, <laughs> I know, left for yeah. cry. So, yeah. um, so that was absolutely crazy. And uh, but yeah, you know, I think you know much of our book is dedicated to trying to understand how people that we used to uh, consider. Um, you know, uh, family, uh, politically speaking, uh, embraced, you know, measures that went against everything that the left uh, that historically has stood for, you know, still should stand for, you know, uh, in terms of, you know, the way it increased, uh, you know, inequalities, uh, you know, I mean, social inequalities, economic inequalities, gender inequalities, you know, I mean, and the way it transferred huge amounts of power and wealth into the hands of uh the already powerful and the already wealthy i mean the uh you know the devastating impact on you know lower middle income countries i mean whatever uh, and of course this this uh you know complete sidelining of uh of of, of democracy and this you know i mean really disturbing uh you know 
creeping authoritarianism that we saw, uh, which you know, also used to be something that the left used to uh, um, used to fight against. I mean, that was a big a big thing of the post uh, post nine eleven uh, social movements. You know, I mean, uh, uh, denouncing how the war on terror was being used to. Uh, uh, so, you know, to crack down on civil liberties and to crack down on the right to protest and was, in fact, being exploited and instrumentalized for, um, uh, you know, reducing the, uh, the, the the spaces of democracy. I mean, this was this was a, cru- you know, it was a, one of the, a crucial pillar of the whole, uh, the, you know, uh, anti-war movement. And, you know, was a, a lot of criticism was uh, directed at, you know, how, uh, uh, you know, the Patriot Act and, and, and kind of, you know, the rise of the national security state. And, 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 and again, you know, all of that, you know, just went, you know, went, went out of the window with, uh, with the pandemic. And that was, you know, I mean, it, it that, yeah, that, that was really a quite, um, quite, quite astonishing. And I think, you know, I mean, it, it points to the fact that nothing good can come from that. From that world anymore you know so i you know, completely agree that thinking in terms of right left terms doesn't really doesn't make any sense anymore uh, i mean I, I think a lot of it comes down to what we've been talking about corporate mm-hmm. capture of trusted institutions you know and and that combined with what you were talking about thomas you know the information well you know this is a you know we're talking about sections of the population which are so much more immersed in media than they were 10 or 15 years ago but that media has has been captured and there's no other word you know the trusted news initiative says it all you know it has become part of mm. a kind of conglomerate view of how to represent reality and you know if you're that much more immersed in it than you were um 10 or 15 years ago i think that does explain quite a lot of what's happened yeah i mean and also i mean the elites have learned that you know nowadays all you're going to do is couch whatever policy no matter how regressive it is in progressive terms and that's going to garner you the support of the progressives you know which is quite quite astonishing i mean so now the progressives just take at face value whatever those in power um you know uh whatever way they spin their their policies and and of course that's something they've always done and so you know i mean those in power never say, "Yeah, we want to, you know, we want to invade this country to steal its oil and so, you know, and, and and crack down on civil liberties at home." Of course, they'll say, "No, we're doing it to defend you at home and to fight for freedom and democracy abroad." And so, you know, those in power have always couched their policies in kind of you know progressive humanitarian terms. That's not new, but the left used to be able to like kind of see through the bullshit, you know, <laughs> and realize that actually maybe it's not about what they claim. Uh, those, those policies to, to be about uh, maybe those you know uh, the, maybe they're just uh, you know um, convenient covers convenient fronts for uh, for you know very different and much darker uh, aims and motives I mean that used to be pretty straightforward right and uh, now it's uh, now it's as if they you know they literally just took the, uh, the the mainstream narrative and you know and 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 made it theirs you know I mean there was zero questioning of the fact that you know the reason that those that governments and uh, and that those in power were giving for these policies was uh, might have been different from from what they were uh, actually claiming. I mean that. Yeah, I mean there was zero questioning of that. They lit. You know they literally uh, just went completely along with that with the idea that this was all about you know protecting uh, public health and 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 and, and, and you know, collective interest. Uh, vis-a-vis you know those right-wing libertarian nuts who wanted to uh, prioritize you know uh, the economy and uh, mm-hmm. uh, and the rights of individuals over the right of the body politic and, and all that bullshit you know which which was which was you know part and parcel of the of the covid consensus i mean that's how it was sold to everyone but what's astonishing is that you know, the, you know those on the left that his, you know historically 
were all about deconstructing uh, dominant narratives and how they just, you know, took took that entire nar- narrative at face value. Uh, and in fact, you know, actually, uh, uh, you know, at the best, the best, the best they could do was criticize the fact that they weren't living up to those claims. I mean, that's you know, that, that's the best they could do. So it's been a, a complete failure. <laughs> you're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. But it's fascinating how previous to the pandemic, we had, under Obama, a disinformation scandal afoot because he took very harsh measures against journalism and most obviously, notoriously, Julian Assange. And then what's happened with Snowden, that created a public distrust of journalism, ironically, even though that is what the mandate of journalism is to expose these kinds of scandals. Similarly, I was working on an ethnography in Brooklyn of several of the 14,000 disappeared men in the U.S. after 9-11 under what was then called the National Security Entry Exit Registration System, more colloquially known as special registration. And this was done under the then INS before the government changed it to homeland security Mm. it was fascinating to see on the ground again i have to refer to some of my friends who would say why are you doing this are you becoming a muslim and i said to some of my friends i said doesn't it bother you that there are fourteen thousand men who've been disappeared from this country Mm. and people would no, it's not in the news it can't be true well yeah, it is true. And it's it's fascinating because the then ACLU, and I say then because ACLU <laughs> since, but the then ACLU was on it. They were yeah. great. I was working with some great attorneys on this. Mm. And I was working with men who my main subject ended up being disappeared, a tailor from Cairo. Now, this was all because of 9-11 happening, the government and George W. Bush cracking down, and the idea that if you overstay your tourist visa, then you're a potential terrorist because you speak Arabic or you are Muslim, etc. The only country not in the Muslim list of those special countries that were targeted was, of course, North Korea. What's interesting about that era and then looking at this today is that we were trained, especially in the U.S., Americans were trained to understand these exceptional cases of surveillance and registration, and they just sort of took it and moved on, even though our history, thinking back to what happened with the Japanese internment camps in in the U.S. during the Second World War, or even you can go see it today, Marfa, Mm -hmm. the estate of Donald Judd, where you can see where Germans were imprisoned, but that's that's in the past, so that's okay. It's it's all very surreal to me how people were able to accept their own subjectivity to this kind of quasi-prison. Well, I mean, I, th- I think that's where, uh, you know, the, the writings of the, of the Italian philosopher Agambina, Giorgio Agamben are so important. You know, I think mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. absolutely that this was justified in that worldview because it was a state of emergency. Because it was a state of emergency, it, extraordinary measures were required you know, and this was a war on terror. And, you know, the, the word war implies that they're going to be victims, you know, uh, may, you know, and, and you know, in, unjustly, maybe. And, you know, people accept it in those terms. And I think um, that's what happened, you know, that, and, and Afghanistan's analysis was so spot on. And that's what happened then. It, that the war on terror saw, and, and, you know, as a historian of somebody who's, you know, spent their career working on, 
the non-Western world, on Africa primarily, but also on parts of Latin America. Um, it, it, what's fascinating for me is to see how really what we saw, what we've seen, is kind of the framework of authoritarian. You know, because the definition of colonialism is in many ways authoritarian capitalism or or, or extremely authoritarian capitalism. Uh, you know, the, the capture of markets, uh, the forced labour and all of those things. Uh, and, and, and that authoritarian model uh, and the emergency framework which justified that then has, be has become has permeated, you know, always was part of the Western state. And now it's kind of clearly part of the Western state. Uh, and 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 that and 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 you know the war on terror was a very important part in that shift I think and and then we've simply seen the continuity of that through through the following twenty years. Yeah, but again, what's astonishing there is how all the followers of a of a Gamben turned on him when yeah. oh yeah when clearly all he was saying was well you know that kind of that state of exception that we've been warning about and you know and talking obsessively about for the past. 20 years, in fact, Agamben starts to, you know, talk about you know, the state of exception, uh, you know, in 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 the wake of the 9-11 wars, you know, and the, and the rise of the national security state, you know, and so so you've got this this whole subsection of the hard left, you know, I mean, the, uh, which was, you know, a huge thing in academia and uh, which which idolized Agamben. And in fact, these guys have been drumming on about, you know, the, I mean, seeing fascism pretty much everywhere, you know, I mean, a lot of the people... Yeah, a lot of the a lot of Agamben's uh, former um, uh, you know for, former followers. I mean, you know, they they even considered uh, you know uh, the, the 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 obligation you have in Italy to carry you know your ID card around as you know that an, an unacceptable form of, uh, of of fascism and authoritarianism. You know, and so so these people that have been seeing fascism everywhere, even where you know. It clearly wasn't there for the past twenty years. Uh, at, you know, once you 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 know, once once you have the imposition of you know, clear, you know, the the exact thing that you've actually been theorizing for the past twenty years, uh, you know, a, a, a total exception, you know, a total, you know, yeah, a total state that takes control of every you know minute aspect of of people's lives, uh, you know, sweeps aside any form of constitutional you know restraint, any legal restraint. I mean, this this is the state of exception, you know, uh, and it's definitely the closest thing to. You know, to to act to, to actual fascism that we've ever that we've seen uh, in the past century, uh, suddenly you know instead of you know joining a gamben in denouncing the, the, these policies as you know uh, an obvious example, you know the realization of everything you've been warning about, no, you actually turn on him and you start calling him a crazy fascist for uh, for pointing this out. I mean that was extraordinary, and I think that again I think yeah. I mean it points that I mean I think it also points to the fact that. A lot of people on the left, I mean, see politics as very much a performative act. I mean, it's not, they don't, they can't really, they don't really, they can never see themselves actually, I think, going, uh, you know, going against the state and, and really risking everything for what they believe in. And so, of course, they don't really fear, uh, you know, the, the surveillance state or... Uh, or this kind of, uh, 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 or, or the national security state, because they can't, they can't really see themselves ever actually uh, being at risk of, uh, of 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 true state, you know, repression, uh, because they view politics, you know, as largely a performative act. You know, I mean, uh, at most, it's about, you know, especially in especially in academia. I mean, at most, it's about, 
you know, writing books or writing articles. But I mean, that's uh, that's pretty much as, as far as it goes. I mean, there's an interesting aspect to that too, which, you know, as a historian, for example, you know, there, there has been quite a lot of work done about, you know, historians have always been very closely connected to the state because they use archives which are produced and maintained by the state. And they therefore often, you know, are analysing and reproducing aspects of a state's view of itself. So, you know, there's also a way in which uh, quite a lot of academic fields, particularly in the social sciences and humanities, have that connection to state organisation. And, and so that will we'll automatically be, uh, be reluctant to really engage in a fundamental critique of those, of those frameworks. It is astonishing to me because when this all happened, I immediately thought to Agamben and even, ironically, Jean-Luc Nancy, and then what happened between the two of them, my jaw dropped quite a bit because I just thought, wait a second. I mean, there's theory and, and then there's praxis, but surely as an academic, you realize that the two need to be integral at moments like this. And uh, the way that he was viewed as an extremist alarmed me quite early on because I thought we, we have to have this voice, even if he's wrong. Even if I'm wrong, we have to have these oppositional voices or we failed at democracy. This was my inner feeling. And then he, you know, as we all know, he published online and he, he published his books. And but still, the media was not giving that the time of day. At the same hand, they were saying that the Great Barrington Declaration, the signatories there were, in fact, anti-science and quacks. And you had Fauci come out pretty much stating this. You had governments like the Italian government, I'll tell you, I had to worry about getting my driving license recognized here because they don't recognize North American driving licenses. I had a British one, but it was a translated one from Canada. So I had to call up what would be the motor vehicle office and say, so what is the procedure now that this was fall of 2020? Now that this virus is here, what changes have you made? Ha, none. No changes just masks. Now, we already knew what the mask science was saying. So I was wondering, why would you put me in a bubble with someone if this is really a dangerous situation? So nothing made sense from what the Italian government was saying to what the Italian government was doing. But we do know that with this recent bonus psicologo, that this government is speaking out of both sides of its mouth and lying straight on to the people because they don't come out and tell people that there is a massive mental health crisis. I'm here mm. to say there is. I see it every day. I don't know about you, Thomas. I notice increased aggressivity, not just on the road, but interpersonal relations. I hear a lot of stories of mental ill health. Just yesterday, again, I go to the pharmacy to pick up a thermometer and I see people coming in to get medicines for their family members who have not stepped foot outside of their houses in three years. No, no, absolutely. I mean, but I mean, yeah, there's the everyday experience that, that, that I think not just in Italy that people are having and at least, uh, you know, uh, or high yeah, in the UK is the same. Yeah, yeah, I think it's the same in the UK. I mean, you know, I think we, we all we can all see that a lot of people well, we can all see that a lot of people uh for a lot of people the pandemic never ended and probably never will end uh so clearly you know they've uh it's, it's done something to them uh so people that were maybe already kind of hypochondriac or uh, paranoid uh you know pre-pandemic uh it's you know that it's it's clearly uh done serious damage to them you know and of course that uh, that includes those that you know still you know continue to mask out in the open uh you know and walking around parks and you still you still see stuff like that and clearly 
uh, that's not something that you can challenge on rational level uh, because uh, you know anyone anyone can understand on a rational level that it makes no sense to wear a mask uh, out in the open, out in a park, and it made no didn't make sense two 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 years ago. It doesn't make sense now. Um, makes even less sense now. Um, but but you know, but this is backed up by you know a huge amount of data. Uh, that shows an increase in uh, mental health issues across the board, especially in young people, in uh, and especially in the countries that locked down. I mean, it's, so this wasn't it wasn't due to the virus. It wasn't due to COVID itself. And in fact, you know, when, uh, when, when if you look at Sweden, you see uh, that it suffered much less. That you know, especially in in terms of. Uh, uh, the the uh, school performance of young uh, of young people uh, it's uh, suffered hardly any loss whatsoever uh, and of course that's of course because it mostly uh, kept schools open uh, throughout throughout the pandemic and so this is clearly a result of the kind of political and biomedical response to COVID it doesn't have it has nothing to do with the pandemic itself and um, yeah yeah we I mean we know that there's been a rise in the, in, in in suicides there's been a rise in obesity there's been a rise in uh, alcohol consumption there's been a rise in gun crime uh, amongst young people uh, in America I mean what you know where whatever you look at uh, we see an increase in um, in in negative tendencies uh, and uh, which in many cases are also driving up uh, deaths among um, uh, among young people. I mean, there's yeah. a study that's just come out now uh, in uh, JAMA. Uh, so, you know, one of the major um, medical magazines out there, uh, which analyzes the, uh, you know, the, the worrying or rising mortality in U.S. children and adolescents, you know, for uh, a variety, variety of reasons that, uh, I mean, the study doesn't even look at, you know, at the, I mean, it looks exclusively at the impact of lockdowns uh, and it's, it's absolutely devastating. Uh, so this is, so we've had, you know, worsening of uh, not only mental, but, you know, in many cases, uh, physical conditions uh, as well and in, uh, in, in young people. And again, I mean, all this was not only easily predictable, but predicted, which is what makes this crime um, so you know, so appalling. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, not only had there been warnings about this, but you know, simple, uh, you know, uh, I mean, simple good, you know, I mean, good sense uh, would have been enough to understand that completely shutting down society and depriving people of social contact for months and end would have had, you know, devastating uh, impacts on, uh, on, at the very least, the mental health of people. I mean, that was, I mean, I think. <laughs> That was pretty easy to figure out, you know, and like or or that closing down schools for months on end, and in some cases even up for even up to a year, as was the case in some developing countries, would have had devastating consequences. I mean, this was obvious, which is what makes the crime even uh, more uh, heinous. I mean, I think I just want to come in. I mean, you know, I think one thing which is really important is, you know, you use the word crime, Thomas, and that is the right word to use because. Uh, what you know, a lot of you know, you now sometimes hear people saying, "Oh, well, we didn't know that there were going to be such, you know, these impacts." I mean, this is this is just you know a biggest pile of crap. You know, just have to call it out. It's a big pile of crap. You know, it really is. There was a UNESCO released a report on March the nineteenth, twenty twenty, about the fact that half of the world's schools had now closed. And what the impacts of those would be. And it's quite clear. They make it quite clear. They make it clear that the impacts on the underprivileged are going to be worse. They say they're going to be impacts on nutrition, impacts on child protection, and that school closures were only going to massively exacerbate inequalities because there were going to be gaps in care. 
because parents were going to be suffering from greater stress. They were going to have extra responsibilities and that all this was going to have a catastrophic impact. This is the UNESCO report from March the 19th, 2020. So it's just a big pile of crap that we didn't know that this was going to have these impacts. And so the question, you know, we really have to lay this clearly. This is a crime because we knew this. It was predicted and it came to pass. And then you have to ask some, you know, and actually hold these these fuckers is the only word I can use to account. You know, why did you therefore allow schools? You know, Thomas, you said the schools were closed for a year. Two years they were closed in India, in Honduras and in Uganda. How was this allowed to happen? It's the most extraordinary problem. In Chicago, the union came out and accused people who wanted the schools to be open as being racists and against poor people when in fact those were the demographics and, and misogynist those were the demographics yeah. Yeah, because what happened in, and what happened in low-income countries and, and yeah, there's a film about to be released about this uh which would be released on the third anniversary of the indian lockdown by collateral global on the impacts on in, on uh, education in, in rural communities in india uh what happened was that uh, huge increases in, in marriage of young of, of adolescent uh, girls because uh suddenly uh there were uh you know suddenly there was no money there was no work real crisis and and you know it was if people could marry their adolescent uh, girls they would because that was a you know at least they would have one fewer person to feed and you know this the idea that it was misogynist to want schools to reopen is the most colossal pile of crap i've ever heard it really is yeah well what we saw here in italy were parents forming groups with the teachers to try to try and get the schools open i interviewed a lot of them for various articles because it's not even a joke at this point but i i accuse those who designed lockdown of trying to make women into Einsteinian astrophysicist, because how are we supposed to work and do DAD here, homeschooling? How are we supposed to do all that and do this within a 24 hour cycle? I was working full time. I'm a freelance journalist, so I was working at home. My wife ended up doing the homeschooling and the daycare with my son who wasn't yet in school. Uh, And it was in large part because of her. We had to take a no English approach in the house, no more English, so that my daughter would be on level with Italian because we had literally just moved to the country. And I kept thinking, what say this came up with this? Because right before you came on, Thomas, Toby and I were talking about the run up to the anti-science bullshit that's been going on for the past three years. And there's been another truckload of bullshit in the form of gender ideology, where for the last 10 years, I've been working on this massively within the UK, where I was based for many years, where all of a sudden gay rights groups don't know what a male or a female is because those NGOs took a mandate and loads of money to push transgenderism from the late 90s onward. I saw this in New York. I saw this directly in London, where all of a sudden sex is no longer dimorphic. Humans are on a rainbow, right? Are you a little bit of this or that? And it's complete bollocks. And and uh, so we saw true. that. And then yeah. in, here in Italy, the Legezan, which <laughs> was somewhat defeated. Let's see what happens yeah. thereafter to. And I'm going to skip to this very quickly. The Oscars the other night, ironically, not ironically, wink, wink. We've got a film nominated for documentary Navalny, which is paradoxical. If you listen to the speeches of all these you know, ills of, of Russia, but those very same ills could be applied to our good friend who's living in Russia <laughs> because Snowden can't leave the country or our other good friend holed up in a very nasty prison in the UK. And yet all these human rights issues 
in Thomas, you, you talked about this earlier, you know, I live in a small town yeah. and last month I've written to the Comune here about this. There was in the library, I kid you not, um, a group of psychologists who came to discuss the most pressing topic after these past three years, childhood bullying. And I was just apoplectic when I read this. And this is on the heels of another fascist conference. Everything's about fascism here. Exposition of art, fascism, Mussolini fascism. And then this. And I said, wait a second, we've just come out of fascism. And I wish we talk about the elephant in the room and, and stop going over 90s trends in psychology. Yes, bullying's important, but I'll tell you what the biggest bullying has been me locked in a house for a very long time and having to worry about where I'm going to eat the next meal. And this is completely skipped over. All of these local discussions and local city councils, they don't want to touch it. It's like dangerous to discuss the fascism and the totalitarianism we've been put through. What do you say to that? Yeah, I mean, I think it just just points to what I was saying earlier. For these people, I mean, politics is purely performative. And so, I mean, the whole, you know, it's it's the anti, it's the, you know, so-called anti-fascist, you know, left here here in Italy that, you know, that, you know, I mean, it's completely quiet for three years about everything that's happened during the pandemic and, and about more in general, the you know, the social and economic crisis that pandemic measures have uh, engendered and, you know, worsened, you know, existing trends and and so on, completely quiet about all that. And when they finally managed to convene a demonstration, it's to it's a demonstration to fight, you know, to 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 against fascism because a bunch of you know, a bunch of right wing kids have beaten up a bunch of left wing kids outside of a school. Uh, you know, as if that's yes, of course, that's a bad thing. But I mean to think that that in some way <laughs> you know signals a return of fascism is uh is 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 completely ludicrous, you know. I think uh but uh, instead, you know, I mean, tens of thousands of people, uh, you know, demonstrating in the streets of Florence uh, against fascism. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's a complete joke. Uh, but I think, yeah, it's, as we were saying earlier, these people, it's, it's purely performative. And so, of course, they, you know, I mean, fa- you know, it's, you know, fascism. You know, they only see fascism where, where, where there isn't any fascism because there's no risk in fighting. Uh, you know, a fascism that exists only in their minds. Uh, it's the, but of course, when it comes to fighting, you know, I mean, you know, an actually existing fascism in the form of, you know, hyper authoritarian, uh, um, the hyper authoritarian policies that we saw during the pandemic, then they're completely shy away from that, and in fact, won't call it, won't, won't even, you know, won't even go, uh, won't even call it out as fascism, uh, or, or quite the contrary. It's those that are fighting those measures that are fascists, and so you've got this complete inversion of reality. But it has to do with the fact that politics for them, politics is, um, you know, purely, uh, you know, performative theatrical call uh, act which has nothing to do with reality i mean i think a lot of this comes back to some of the things we have been talking about as well to do with social media for example because you know reality itself has become more performative you know something is real because you've tweeted about it uh you know not because you've actually done it uh whatever it might be and i think that there and, and this links to something that we allude to a little bit in our book you know that the way uh, that michel foucault's idea of the panopticon uh, and the and the way in which uh, figures in authority in society have control over uh, and and monitor 
uh, activity of, 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 of others in society, and that this has become a collective framework now where everybody's monitoring each other on social media, which is, of course, much more effective, actually, really, than a, a top-down approach in some ways. Uh, and, and what matters then is performative. So regarding COVID restrictions, you know, we all know people who were performing their adherence to COVID restrictions on social media, but were actually, you know, maybe taking their kids around to a neighbour's <laughs> back or something like that. Uh, so, you know, uh, there was performativity has actually, and, and this is, of course, in, wholly in keeping with uh, the left-wing uh, philosophy, uh, philo- philosophical frameworks of the last 20 or 30 years, Baudrillard's ideas of, uh, you know, the mediation and the, me- and, and, and the simulation becoming the real. Yeah. Uh, this is actually wholly in keeping with all of those ideas. Uh, and, and so what we see is almost like a rejection of the cherished idea. And as I say, this is in many ways, I think, quite rich picking for psychoanalysts. But I also think that, um, you know, we're also what we're also what the writer, which really comes to mind when I think of all of this, uh, or thinker who comes to mind is Elias Canetti, the, the Nobel Prize winning. Crowds and Power. Crowds yeah. and Power, yes. Mm-hmm. The book Crowds and Power, where what we're really seeing is, you know, my my crowd... Whatever my crowd thinks is right, and everybody else, and the other crowd is a fascist, uh, and we've seen that on both sides actually. Uh, and uh, and you know, and you know, whatever the relationship between those uh, ideas and reality are very tenuous on all sides, really. Uh, and that is to do with, I think, the simulation having become the real. Oh, yeah, I think to Baudrillard's description of the parking lot outside of Disneyland, right? And he says that's the only real there, ironically. <laughs> and the other day I was in a conversation with someone here and he reminded me of a quote. He misdirected uh, uh, it. He qu- credited it to um, Oriana Falacci, but it's not her. I went and looked it up. It's Mino Macari, who was an Italian painter, writer, and journalist who said... I'm translating here. Fascism can be divided into two categories, the fascists and the (laughs) anti-fascists. And it sort of speaks to to what's happening in the sense of all of what we're talking about combined with wokery. Right. And and social media is a great performative specter for wokery, especially when you can go on and tell people that they are anti-vaccine because they don't want to take this or myself I was given a fine here which I'm not going to pay um, to take this quote-unquote vaccine I put it in air quotes and in your book vaccinating the world against COVID by any means necessary um, followed by that conclusion to that section of your first part of the book with Omicron it's very interesting yeah. this because I interviewed Topher Field who made a film about uh, what happened in Melbourne. And he talks about how the goalposts had rocket boosters on them for this pandemic. They were always shifting, not just there, but here too, right? So we were told mm. the, you remember the vaccine under Trump when he was talking about it being developed, all the Democrats were like, ain't no way that's getting in my body. But when Biden won, everything shifted. And it's quite mm-hmm. interesting to see how, I mean, we saw the power of big tech around the laptop story. And then the vaccine hesitation suddenly became everyone's who's a good person, who's a good American is going to take this vaccine. But that story was very mismanaged, even by Biden's own words. It was supposed to be a true vaccine that stopped the virus. Of course, that was anything but true. What 
is the current state of the vaccine uh, in terms of the way that people are understanding it. Because what I've seen, and people have said it on my Facebook wall, where are all those people pushing for the vaccine? They seem to have all disappeared now. And, and there's a notable silence around the vaccine. I mean, I think I agree with that. I, I, you know, it has, I mean, Thomas, you probably want to say more in a moment because you've written this piece yesterday about the, you know, the German Minister of Health. But I think... Um, yeah, it's like a lot of COVID uh, discussion, you know, when things suddenly make the mainstream narrative look a lot more shaky, instead of debating it, you know, those who push for it uh, fall silent. Uh, and that's what we've seen, you know, as you say, you know, you don't really see that much talk about anti-vaxxer ideology or, although, you know, the, one of the people who has criticised it, but Richard Seymour did say, you know, uh, I would accuse me or say on Twitter that I was a vaccine sceptic and when I pointed out that one of the arguments in the book was that the focus on COVID vaccines had had detracted from other vaccination programs in lower middle income countries where other conditions were more uh, serious than COVID, he he uh, he had to retract that. But you know, so I mean, there hasn't, other than that, you know, I suppose you know there isn't a lot of, of of retrenchment around the vaccine narrative. There aren't many people. I think Independent Sage did uh, here in the UK did get upset when the government said it wasn't going to authorize. Uh, or suggest that people under 50 had the boosters and, and were demanding their access to it. That was a few months ago. But even they have gone a bit quiet about it. And you certainly don't see a lot of that. So I think, um, yeah, it seems to be, again, a question of performativity. Nobody who's performed championing this narrative in the bullying way in which it was championed now wants to perform an embarrassing U-turn. So Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think what's interesting is that a lot of people, I mean, very few people I know would consider, even, you know, amongst amongst the kind of multi-vaxxed and even amongst those that, you know, um, strongly supported vaccination in the, uh, you know, in, in during the initial uh, rollout, uh, I know very few people that would now get a booster. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, information has been, so much information has been trickling down. Uh, you know, it's, uh, most people aren't like us, you know, obsessively going on, going over every piece of data that comes out about vaccines. And when you, of course, when you take that into consideration, you know, there's, there's, you know, the, the case against, uh, you know, open-ended mass vaccination with these novel mRNA vaccines is, uh, is, is pretty clear cut. I mean, it's there's just there's just no way this should have happened um but um but i think even even those that aren't kind of like you know paying too much attention to the issue enough information is trickling down in terms of you know you'll hear about uh oh you know another person i know that's had that's had you know post-vaccination problems and oh but what about oh, i just i just heard on the news that they've thrown away two billion doses because no one wants them anymore and oh i've just heard that uh, but, but Miss von der Leyen in 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 in, in Brussels is and doesn't want to hand over the text messages that she exchanged with the Pfizer CEO Berla, in which she negotiated to say the, the the purchase of two billion doses of the of the vaccine. So you know, I mean, there's some stuff trickling down or bub or information bubbling up to the surface that is. Uh, is is making enough people, uh, yeah, at the very least, uh, suspicious about um, about the whole thing. And but of course. Uh, again, you have the problem of um, of sunken costs. I mean, those that, uh, on the one hand, you have those that, of course, don't want to be thinking too much about what the vax, you know, 
they don't want to be thinking about what they put into their body because you know that would you know that would just make them anxious and so of course they prefer to just not not think about it too much they definitely wouldn't take another you know uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't get boosted uh or boosted again but they don't want to be thinking too much about the damage they might have done to themselves by taking this vaccine. Um, and then, you know, then, then of course you have the ones that were vocally supportive of mass, mass vaccination, uh, who, who of course uh, will, you know, have a very hard time admitting they were wrong. And so well, they, they won't, you know, as, as you mentioned, I mean, they won't, you know, they won't take to social media to make these uh, grand uh, pro-vaccination claims anymore. In fact, they're very quiet about them. But I think it's very unlikely we'll see uh, we'll see a kind of an admission uh, on their behalf that they that they were wrong. Uh, there are a few, you know, I mean, uh, you know, quite extraordinary exceptions that that, that, that we're seeing. I mean, uh, yeah, I just wrote about the. Uh, quite astonishing u-turn that the german health minister uh, has just done uh, i mean this 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 is a pro this guy was a pro you know one of the, the you know uh, most uh, pro pro lockdown pro mass vaccination hawks that we that we that we that we had in in the west a lot of back is bad news Ugh. yeah and but he's now you know been forced to admit on national tv that he was that he wrongly claimed that these vaccines had no side effects whatsoever. Uh, something that he repeatedly claimed uh, throughout uh, 2021 and 2022, um, and he's now admitted that he was wrong. Uh, and of course, that's because it's been impo- it's become impossible to hide since there are you know almost 350,000 uh, adverse events that you know uh, reports that have been lodged with the German Ministry of Health uh, uh dozens of uh, legal cases that have been uh, mounted against the German state of course because uh, thanks to uh, the contracts signed with the vaccine makers uh, all the liabilities and all the legal uh, liabilities in the event of uh, adverse events or any uh, any negative uh, um, effect associated with vaccine is on the states, uh, so the the companies aren't liable for anything, uh, which means that you know that these the states are going to be landed with pretty massive uh, um, um, lawsuit costs and uh, compensation costs, um, uh, and in fact, you know, he's saying he wants to set up a government program to investigate, uh, you know, short and long term vaccine effects, and is even and is even asking the uh, pharmaceutical companies to uh, to help with the compensations on a voluntary basis uh, because he, because they've made so much money. Uh, so um, of course it's um, it's 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 pretty astonishing. I think you know. I mean, this will just uh, point to. I mean, I think more and more stuff more and more stuff is going to come out. I mean, what's interesting though as well. I mean, we could say you know the logic of capitalism may in the end bring this out because you know if it becomes in if if you know if people are making claims and the government has to acknowledge them they're not going to want to pay it all so you know then the way you know people some people have raised the the question of of fraudulent of the of the nature of the original trials potential uh potential fraud and uh and, and whether that might you know the governments may come back may decide to come back to that I don't know. I think it's it's such a big scandal that I mean, once I mean, this is one of the biggest scandals ever. I mean, everything that's related to the kind of vaccine development and rollout is the biggest uh, kind of 
I mean, it's the biggest example of, of corporate capture that I can that I can think of. You know, I mean, we we have governments and public institutions fully funding the uh, the research and development that goes into the vaccine, and then allowing the companies to keep the patents and fix the prices and decide at what price they're going to sell the vaccines uh, that the government's funded back to the governments. Uh, it's uh, I mean, again, this is this this relates to issues that the left has been denouncing for a very long time. I mean, you know, I mean, this is this is like you know, kind of you know, uh, the shock doctrine that Naomi Klein wrote about in her book on steroids, uh, you know. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, well, the yeah. film made by Jennifer Sharp called Anecdotals reveals the doctoring of a lot of the, the science, the science. And it was kept from official documentation. Uh, I recommend you watch the film. I interviewed her okay. at our last show of 2022. And this is an L.A.-based filmmaker who does films in Hollywood. And she put her own career on the line because this will have a knock-on effect, of course, for future film projects. But how in the heck is it? We already know that people working within the FDA often retire and end up working for big pharma. This is a pattern. That's one of the major themes of the book, really, is this revolving door and how the revolving door has shaped this outcome. And, you know, I think if there's one uh, policy aspect which you might hope the governments would look at it would be that, although I, I like Thomas, I mean, I, on that, I, I would agree with you, Thomas, I, I don't hold out a huge amount of hope. It's, uh, you know, it's the nature of the, of the neoliberal state, uh, which has been, which has constructed this response uh, through the way in which the corporation has been, has become the model for the government, uh, the management of, you know, the often autocratic management of corporations has become the model for government and, and government led institutions. And that's what we've seen. Your last chapter here, it touched me quite a bit because when this was going down in Italy, we were the first Western country to go into this lockdown. The narrative was grandmother, grandfather. I lived in a condominium. We were the youngest people in it, aside from one other woman. Everyone in the condominium was above 75. There were nightly parties of people breaking all the measures here. And I kept thinking, what's going on? That on the one hand, we're given this narrative, but on the other, it's you know, potluck liberty. And this is the issue I want to ask you about, the class issue, because how yeah. on earth can we elide the most necessary discussion about class inequality? Here I was, having just moved to Italy, I was eligible for nothing except the loans when they let those loose, uh, because I was not living in Italy the year before. And I was basically left high and dry. I had to think through how to make a 24-hour day work to do my own work and shopping, all the things you do in a house regularly, plus all the school stuff that the kids were not getting. So you had an incredible strain of sexism within these mandates. But then the what I like to call human shield of using the elderly as cover, that was complete bullshit from the beginning. They did nothing for the elderly in this country. And I've looked into other countries. I've heard of no country that developed any kind of like meals on wheels for the elderly living in rural areas. No, no one helped the elderly. If anything, the private sector did. I heard that Waitrose and Sainsbury's in the UK was helping out with free deliveries for a certain demographic. But that's pretty much it. So we were sold a lie about the elderly. But the big truth not told in all this is all the people, especially my class, freelancers, who were left high and dry by a system 
that didn't care. And it's still not addressed today, just like the rental class. I started to cover a story of people who went on rent strike in Bologna, but they were too afraid to even be quoted anonymously. Okay, so you had these lefty governments <laughs> with the the provincial government here, which is in the PD, not at all, not one measure to protect renters who are obviously the poorest. Nothing really happened to protect the working classes, the freelance class, the poor, nothing. Yet we are given this notion that the elderly need to live to 83 or 93. And where do we make that trade-off, Thomas and Toby? Because this is a real issue. I said to people, call me cruel, but why should I have to lose everything, my present health, my psychological health, all because someone's well-to-do grandparent needs to live another 10 months, 10 years, 10 minutes? No, no, it's, it's extraordinary. It's, it's extraordinary. I mean, say, I mean, I think you know, it comes back to. Uh, I think fundamentally, performativity was more important to uh, what's called the laptop class than reality. You know, the performativity of care was more important than actual care and empathy, and that speaks to the way in which information, screen time, have transformed human beings. And I think you know, it, it, the, the, the idea that you know this was being kind to older people is incredible you know they were locked up marooned uh isolated from their loved ones died in care homes alone i mean extraordinary cruel extraordinary cruelty but you know actual cruelty was not as important as performative care and empathy and uh that's where i would uh, trace it to and uh and i think you know the distance which has been created between people through new technologies largely and uh, and its impacts on people's consciousness uh, you know that's where we're at yeah yeah me too again i would differentiate the kind of you know i mean you can you can look at this from a theoretical standpoint and from a you know from, from a more concrete standpoint i mean even from a purely theoretical standpoint it's obvious that the notion that anything is justified anything is justified any uh policy regardless of what the uh, uh the you know the the knock-on uh, effects or the collateral damage may be is justified in order to uh, prolong, prolong by any measure the kind of uh, the, the the life of already uh, very old people clearly doesn't make any sense I mean again these are pretty I mean you don't have to be a uh, you know a doctor in philosophy uh, or in you know logic to realize that this is a completely illogical approach to uh to policy making, but this was basically, you know, a pillar of the COVID consensus. Anything is justified to reduce mortality by uh, COVID mortality by any uh, percentage. Uh, that was basically the uh, the argument, and clearly the argument made no sense whatsoever. So, I would say, even if these measures had, if these these measures and you know lockdown in particular, even if these measures had uh you know could, could be uh could, could be proven to actually have the have these positive effects on hospitalization and mortality rates and even if they had been uh you know proven beyond doubt to be able to uh prolong you know the lives of uh, uh elderly people by x months uh i think you know still obviously there should have been a discussion about trade-offs and uh you know uh how far are we willing to go um uh, and, and also, why don't we apply the same logic to, uh, you know, uh, uh, the 
all those things out there that cause damage to people on a daily basis. You know, I mean, clearly, it, I mean, the, the whole approach made no sense. I mean, it's like, you know, how many people die of respiratory diseases due to, uh, you know, uh, the pollution and smog? Uh, but no one's, no one's proposing to shut down all factories and, 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 and you know, put, put away but ban all cars because people die from these issues, you know, even though clearly it would uh, lengthen the, the lives of a lot of people. So, I mean, clearly the whole argument from a theoretical standpoint didn't make any sense, but of course it's made, you know, it's, it makes even less sense if you're considering that we know that these measures were not effective in protecting the most vulnerable, were not effective in protecting, especially the elderly who died in, uh, in, in, in huge numbers, mostly in care homes. Uh, and so, in fact, I mean, the, 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 uh, the approach that was championed and proposed by the Great Barrington Declaration, but which in turn only reflected what was the pre-2020 consensus as to how you approach uh, respiratory uh, epidemics and pandemics, uh, which was to focus all resources on, you know, protecting the vulnerable and, and, and those most at risk i.e. in this case the elderly, uh, clearly that approach, or rather than kind of locking locking the healthy, locking everyone up, including the healthy people, uh, clearly that approach would have uh, not only uh, spared a lot of the uh, you know economic and social and psychological damage that we all suffered for no reason whatsoever, but it also would have been much more effective, I think, in actually saving the lives of those, of those that were most at risk from this uh, from this virus. So I think the uh, the failure of these measures is a is, is a failure at, uh, at all levels. They failed in all, in all respects, but uh, even in terms of their own uh, arguments, which was that you know they were necessary to protect the the, the elderly and to protect the vulnerable, they uh, they failed uh, to do that, and that was you know, easily predictable. In fact, was was predicted. And so again, again, you know, I. I would stress that there's a criminal element to what was done. Oh, 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 oh,